The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus." Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we are uh, ready to focus on the word of God. The Holy Spirit is uh, ready to work in our lives, teaching us and guiding us in the direction of truth so that we can continue our spiritual growth. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we can come to you in prayer, that you are a God who desires to be communicated with, and that you have provided everything for us in our spiritual life that we may grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Father, as we study your word this evening, we pray that you'd help us understand these things and put them into practice in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Every time we come to a situation in life where we have a friend or a family member, a loved one, die, it always brings us face to face with the whole concept of death. And every now and then when I have a funeral to conduct that's for a friend or someone I know personally, it seems to you know, just jar me a little bit. If you have never gone through a time in your life where you have had a, someone very close to you, especially if it's not an older parent or someone whose death is somewhat expected, then it is... Death itself just comes as sort of a shock. It just sort of brings us up short and catches our attention. One minute we're spending time talking, planning, laughing, enjoying a friendship with someone, and the next minute they're just not there anymore. We can't pick up the phone and call them. We can't talk to them. The plans that we made with them aren't going to be brought to completion. It's just a time when when everything that we thought would happen just just radically shifts. It's a time when we experience the deep pangs of loss and grief and mourning. 
And I believe it's the, the, as part of death and what we experience when we go through grief and mourning is one of the ways God gets our attention on what death is all about. Death is not normal. God did not design us to go through death or to experience the death of a loved one. That was not God's original design in the Garden of Eden. I remember one time I taught that and somebody said, what do you mean we weren't designed for death? We die. We die because of sin. Sin is abnormal. Ever since Adam ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we live in an abnormal universe. We have abnormal relationships. You have an abnormal marriage. I don't want to hear anybody say amen. Everything in this life is abnormal because it is tainted, distorted, and warped by sin. And the most evident reality of that, we, talk, we know about sickness and there's war and violence and crime and all of these other things, but where it's really brought home to us on a day-to-day basis is when somebody dies or even when a pet dies. Because all of a sudden, that which is normal, that which is, is expected, that which has become a, a part of our life, suddenly isn't there anymore. And I think it's a time for us to stop and think about what has happened. Why has it happened? Where did death come from? And it is a reminder that death itself was not part of God's plan, and it's entered into our life because of sin. And because there is sin and because there is death, uh, there is a need for salvation. It's a great opportunity to witness and a great opportunity to present the gospel to somebody at that particular time. Now, as we come to our study in Genesis, we are on the uh, entry ramp to the death of Sarah in Genesis chapter 23. But this actually gets set up for us at the end of Genesis chapter 22. The focus of this section from the last paragraph of chapter 22 down through 23 is really on hope. It's on the hope that God provides for a future, even though we're living in a world of unfulfilled expectations, unfulfilled promise, There is a certain, sure hope. We have a certain expectation, a certainty. This is the backdrop for what Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, a passage that we usually hear as believers at the time of a funeral. It has to do with the fact that at at that particular time, Paul had taught the Thessalonian believers about the rapture, that Jesus Christ was coming soon. He emphasized the imminency of the rapture, and yet before Jesus returned, people began to die. So they questioned him, what happens to believers when they die? And in 1 Thess 4.13 he says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow or grieve as those who have no hope. And there he draws a distinction between how the believer is to handle loss and death and grief versus that of the unbeliever. There is a distinction. And another thing to note is that he recognizes the validity of sorrow, the legitimacy of grief for a believer. Sometimes believers get the idea that that if they've lost a 
a loved one, they've lost a spouse, a child, a parent, and they, they feel those pangs of sorrow or grief, there's, there's some level of guilt that, well, if I was really trusting the Lord, I wouldn't feel this way. But that's not true. There's not a contradiction there between having joy or the inner happiness that the Lord provides and at the same time experiencing sorrow and grief. The Lord Jesus Christ always had perfect happiness, and yet the word grief or sorrow is clearly applied to him at places. And he sorrowed over certain circumstances and certain situations. So there's not a contradiction between the concept of grieving and having perfect happiness. The difference is we don't press the panic button. We don't fall apart. We're not in a state of absolute hopelessness because we know that there is life beyond the grave, that at the point of death a believer is absent from the body and face to face with the Lord, and that there is a future hope, a confident expectation, and that this life is just the staging ground for eternity. And that is developed in this episode at the end of Genesis 22 and 23. Last time, we looked at the passage in Genesis 22, which the Jews refer to as the Akeda, which means the binding. And this is the greatest story in the Old Testament in Jewish theology. It is the binding of Isaac. And in that, we saw that Abraham really uses two key stress busters or problem-solving devices or spiritual skills to handle this situation. Now, when I taught it uh, last week, we emphasized faith more than anything else, that he was, he was operating on the faith rest drill. And it's one of the great passages to illustrate the faith rest drill in the Old Testament because for Abraham... He was now walking by faith. He was trusting in the promise of God, and he was claiming those promises. And so rather than panic or rather than try to figure out some other way to sacrifice Isaac or to you know, somehow get around this, he, he never gave it a second thought. He understood the doctrine of resurrection. And that really takes us to two other basic problem-solving devices that we see exemplified. And those basic problem-solving devices are stress busters that we've been covering as basic spiritual skills in the basic series on on uh, Sunday night interrelate. They overlap. You can't just always come in and just separate them. You have the faith rest drill, which is mixing faith with promises. Then you have grace orientation. Grace orientation focuses on the fact that God in His grace has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And this is secured through His character, what we've seen in 2 Peter 1 verse 3. And it is by these, that is His His glory and His essence, by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises. And the promises, though, are the focal point of faith. And what are promises? Promises explain doctrine. They're the promises, the procedures, the plans, the policies of God that are embedded in the Scripture. So you have faith rest drill, grace orientation, doctrinal orientation, all interact. They all overlap. And in the episode with, with Isaac, we see the dynamics of how those three 
spiritual skills work together. He's trusting God. He's walking by faith and not by sight. He does so because of grace. Grace made a promise to Abraham. Grace promised Abraham that God would give him land, seed, and blessing, the three elements in the Abrahamic covenant. But God would give him a son, and he would give him that son through Sarah. And through that son, kings would come, nations would come, uh, specifically a nation would come. And through that son, there would be this innumerable descendants, innumerable descendants, more, more numerous than the stars in the sky or the sands of the seashore. So there is a, there's a gracious gift there in that seed. And so when Abraham looked at Isaac, he thought about grace. But beyond that, there is a doctrinal issue here, and that is the teaching, a doctrine. Let's back up a minute and let me define doctrine. Doctrine isn't just some sort of abstract theology. That's how a lot of people use doctrine. But the way we use doctrine is it incorporates all of the principles and procedures of life. It starts with what some people may think of as more abstract doctrine, and then it, such as the Trinity, and a lot of people think, well, how does the Trinity have practical value? And I've outlined that a number of ways. It helps us to understand society and relationships and equality and distinctions and authority orientation. And all of these are very practical concepts, but they grow out of what some people think is just some uh, unusual Christian belief, some abstract doctrine. And really, there's no such thing as just abstract doctrine. or it, Theology isn't philosophy. It's not, not this sort of uh, uh, rarefied, atmospheric intellectualization of uh, human opinions and speculation, which is what you run into in philosophy. Doctrine is always practical. If, it, if you can't figure out how it applies... It's not God's truth. God's truth always is practical and changes the way we think, we act, we live, something along that nature, according to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. So Abraham has certain doctrine that has been taught to him by God through the Abrahamic covenant. And throughout these tests that Abraham went through, from the time the covenant was given in Genesis 12 all the way up through chapter 21, God is testing Abraham to make sure he understands that God is going to fulfill the promise that he has made. And he finally gets it. He really gets it. So that when the big final exam comes in chapter 22, Abraham is completely relaxed as part of grace orientation. He knows that God has supplied everything he needs. He has supplied the seed. And whatever happens, the seed isn't going to stop. There's going to be a future, so there's a, there is a future orientation. And this is because he has understood the doctrine, so that his thinking has been aligned to the teaching of God's plan. That's doctrinal orientation. We'll cover it in more detail this coming Sunday night. But in grace orientation, you align your thinking and orient it to grace. And in doctrinal orientation, you orient it to doctrine. So we see that his thinking has been so oriented to doctrine and to the truth of truths that are revealed in the Abrahamic covenant that when God said, go sacrifice Isaac on the mountains of Moriah, Instantly, doctrine kicks in, and he's thinking of resurrection, that even if I have to 
uh, actually slit his throat and kill him. God's going to raise him from the dead. Therefore, I can be completely relaxed, trust God, he's going to fulfill his promise, and I move right through the test. And so as we come through chapter 22, we see Abraham pass his final exam. Having passed his final exam in chapter 22, the writer of Genesis doesn't spend any more time dealing with Abraham and his spiritual life. He has reached that point of maturity and given that evidence in his spiritual life. And so the writer is now shifting from Abraham and Abraham's maturity to preparation for the future. And that is indicated by these next five verses given at the end of Genesis chapter 22, verses 20 to 24. Now, many Bible teachers would just skip over this. They would jump from verse 19 to chapter 23, and and they might just say, well, we have five verses here that give the descendants of Nahor, uh, Abraham's cousin, back home in uh, Padan Aram in the area of Mesopotamia. And this just shows uh, that that God is working through the other uh, branch of the family because it culminates in the birth of Rebekah. And if they say that much, but there's something a little more going on here. Whenever we see passages, or at least when I as a pastor see a passage that's difficult to to teach, and I look at this and I say, well, here we have just a list of names. Why is this here? I mean, that's the question we should ask. We look at something that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to us or it seems to be boring or you get over there into into First uh, Chronicles or Second Chronicles and read four chapters that give you the genealogies of, of the priestly line and you read through that and, and you get three verses down and you fall asleep, wake up the next morning and the next night you say, well, I'm going to make it through that chapter tonight and you go about five verses and you're asleep again. You need to think in terms of why has God put this here? What's he trying to communicate to us other than just this grocery list of names that are foreign to us? We don't know how to pronounce them, and we're not really sure how it all fits together. And you see the same kind of thing here in verses 20 to 24. We have this shift, complete shift, away from Abraham and his family and anything related to the promise of the seed, to the descendants of Nahor, Abraham's brother. And so we have to ask the question, well, why is this here? Now, if you have this up here, you have, well, wait a minute. There we go. This is the slide I want. Nahor is married to Milcah, and then he has a concubine, Ruma. And through Milcah, he has eight sons. Uz, Buzz, actually it's Uts and Buzz, okay? But in, in uh, the transliteration, the T is usually left out of the uh, Uz. You have Uz, Buzz, Kemuel, Chesed, Hatso, Pildash, Yidlaf, Bethuel, who is the father of Rebekah. And then through Ruma, you have four sons, Teba, Gaham, Tahash, and Maaka. Now we look at that and we go, so what? Why is this significant? It's significant because in the mind of the, of the writer of Scripture, in Moses' mind, in, under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, 
the Holy Spirit is transitioning our thought from the present of what he's doing in Abraham to the future in how he's going to fulfill the promise to Abraham through Isaac. And this this um, genealogy that's given here, we would think, would really, since it focuses on Rebekah, we would think, well, that seems to have a, a more significant place, not here, but at the end of chapter 23 or the beginning of chapter 24, which is where you have Abraham send Eliezer to back to the homeland in Padan Aram to look for a bride for Isaac. So we would think that it would fit there logically. But the writer puts it here for a purpose. He's going to focus our attention on the fact that God has already been working sovereignly in history to provide the wife for Isaac and the future of the seed. And he puts it here because in chapter 23 we're going to be faced with the death of Sarah. So there is hope laid out before there's death. That's his focus, is to remind us that God is working. There's a future secured for the seed before he goes to the uh, negative, which is the uh, death of Sarah. So this is the focal point here in this particular uh, genealogy going down to Bethuel, who is the father of Rebekah, and that God as a sovereign God, this is the principle, God as a sovereign God has already provided for the future, no matter what other circumstances may take place. And apparently, Abraham is not aware of what's going on with that branch of the family. Apparently, they didn't keep in touch because when we get to chapter 24, He's going to send Eliezer back, and he doesn't know who's back there or, or how many daughters have been born. He's not aware of the birth of Rebecca, yet obviously she's been, she's, she's born and she has, uh, she's at least 20, 20 years of age by the time we get to chapter 24. The emphasis here is on the future, that the promise of God will be fulfilled even after Abraham and Sarah is gone. So the focus here is on the future. So what have we seen in terms of spiritual skills? We've seen with Abraham, faith rest drill linked with grace orientation and doctrine orientation. And now, as we move into the end of the chapter and into chapter 23, we have a focus on a personal sense of eternal destiny. Because with the death of Sarah, there's the realization that they are not going to see the promise fulfilled in their life. Chapter 23 is going to tell us the story of the death of Sarah and her burial. After 127 years and at least 75, maybe 100 years with Abraham, we don't know when they married, but if she was in her 20s, they were married uh, at least 100 years. Isaac is 37. He's unmarried doesn't have any children, so there is no obvious descent. There is no obvious fulfillment of the promise. And so the promise is hanging that there will be future generations. And this is the inherent conflict in the narrative that we find, and that is that the promise has been made, 
There's an expectation of generations to come, and yet they're unfulfilled. God's made the promise to Abraham and Sarah, and now one of them dies. Now, there's a secondary theme here that's also important, and that is that it's the idea that there's no going back. The principle, the principle in the ancient world at, at this time was that you would go back to your homeland to be buried. But God has put their attention on the, this land, the land of Canaan. This is where the future is. So instead of focusing on the past and looking at where they came from and, and going back to Padan Aram, to the area over near Ur of the Chaldees or in the Mesopotamia area, Abraham is going to buy land here in the land of Canaan. And from this point on, it will be this land where this family is going to uh, bury their dead. It is a focus on the future. And too often, uh, believers don't understand this principle. And the application for us is that as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, once we're saved, there's no going back. There's a radical change that takes place. As radical as what happens with Abraham. We have a new identity, a new future, a new focus. And unfortunately, too many believers, once they're saved, they keep turning around and going back. It's that doctrine of the dog returning to its vomit back in 1 Peter chapter chapter 4, that believers get involved and back, they, they backslide and they put all their attention on the world and the cosmic system and the values of the co- cosmic system. And they're so concerned with living in this world that they forget that God has a destiny for us in the future. And part of growth and advance in the Christian life is for that reality to be more true for us than our present experience. This is the way it was with Abraham and Sarah. Hebrews, The writer of Hebrews comments on this in verses 13 through 16 of Hebrews chapter 11. There the writer of Hebrews comments, These all died in faith. Referring back, it would include Abraham and Sarah, even though there's a few verses after this related to Abraham's passing the test with Isaac. This is a summary insertion in Hebrews 11:13 through 16. These all died in faith, not having received the promises. Abraham and Sarah hadn't received the promises, but having seen them afar off, they had a hint of its fulfillment with just the birth of Isaac. Just that one birth was all the fulfillment that they saw. But having seen them, that is the promises afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. This is a personal sense of eternal destiny, recognizing that that this world is not our home anymore. Our citizenship is no longer here on this planet. We're living here as ambassadors for the Lord Jesus Christ, but our homeland is elsewhere. It's heaven. Our family is elsewhere. It's heaven. Our future destiny is elsewhere. It's heaven. It's not here and on this planet. So it changes our focus and orientation, just as it did with the Old Testament patriarchs. They understood that it wasn't this world that was the focus. They were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Verse 14, For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. 
They were focused on the future. There's no turning back. They weren't looking back to what they had in Padan Aram. They weren't looking back to what the world had to offer. They weren't looking back to to uh, Ur the Chaldees. They were looking forward to what God was going to provide and the future destiny. Verse 15. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. What the writer of Hebrews is saying there is if they thought about it, they might have been enticed to go back, but they were so focused on the future that it never occurred to them to go back. That's doctrinal orientation. That is also a personal sense of eternal destiny where God's promise for the future is so real that it changes the way we live today. Verse 16, But now they desire a better that is a heavenly country. That word country is implied. They desire a better that is heaven, a better future. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. This is one of the foundational verses for understanding a personal sense of our eternal destiny. And since I'm not going to get into that too much in terms of our study on basics on on uh, Sunday night, because that's really not a basic skill, that's where we start moving into adolescence, I thought we would just talk about it a li- little bit tonight because it comes out of this passage. It is what undergirds the... The writer's thought in verses 20 to 24 that God is always focused on the future. And even while Abraham is going through his growth process over in the land of Canaan, while the seed is finally born, God's been working through Nahor back at at the homeland preparing a bride for the seed, for Isaac. So Abraham has come now in his maturity to understand that the promise is not going to be fulfilled in his lifetime. He's not going to see the land. He's not going to own the land. The, the dimensions of the land that were promised to him from the river of Egypt to the river, river Euphrates, the land that would cover all of what is now modern, uh, modern Israel plus all the disputed territories all the way up into Lebanon and Syria all the way across to the Euphrates, including all of Jordan and portions of, uh, of Iraq and portions of the northern, northern part of Saudi Arabia. All of this was part of the land that God promised him, but he wasn't ever going to see it. And since God promised him that he would own it, what does that tell him? That there's a future. That my ownership is that I may die now. Sarah's already died. I may die, but God is going to ultimately fulfill the promise in the future. So Abraham knows the promise will not be fulfilled in his lifetime. Second, Abraham at this point is still not an owner of any piece of real estate in the promised land. God's promised him that this is his land. He he will own it. But at this point, at the beginning of chapter 23... He doesn't own one square inch of real estate in the land of Canaan. Third, we know that God has promised Abraham ownership in a land that's not his. Therefore, Abraham reaches a doctrinal conclusion as part of the faith rest drill that the promise will be fulfilled in a resurrected state. And it's interesting that when Jesus is engaged in a confrontation with the Sadducees, and they question him about the resurrection, he goes back to this very principle that since God promised the land to Abraham, 
that, and since Abraham never owned it, that that indicates the reality of resurrection because if God is going to fulfill his promise to Abraham, then Abraham's going to have to be brought back to life in order to own the land. Jesus had some really sophisticated arguments to prove his point. So now we come to the report of Sarah's death in chapter 23. Verses 1 and 2 gives us the basic report of of, of Sarah's death and Abraham's grief. Verse 1, Sarah lived 127 years. Literally, it's Sarah lived 100 years and 20 years and 7 years. This is a common way of expressing it in the Hebrew and that type of phraseology is used several places where you give the age of a person to death. She lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. Now, Abraham is going to live to be 175. At this point, he's 137, so he has about uh, 30, what is it, 33, 30, or 38 more years uh, to go before he's going to, uh, before he's going to be taken home. We learn that Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron. Now, here we have a map of, of Israel. This is the general area here. Here's the Dead Sea. Over here to the south is the Negev, which is actually the Hebrew word for the south. This is mostly a desert area down here to the south. At, towards the southernmost range of the of the territory is Beersheba, which is where Abraham had dug the well. And there he set up an altar to worship God at Beersheba. And for about 27 years, they lived there. Now they've moved back up to where they had lived at an earlier time at Hebron. Now, Hebron is actually a name that is given much later in history. The original name the Canaanite name was Kiriath Arba. And in fact, this is just a village. Apparently it wiped out and was resettled several times. And the uh, village that was known as Hebron actually isn't uh, founded until later on uh, during the period of the wilderness wanderings. It's, uh, so this is an earlier settlement called Kiriath Arba. In the land of Cain, and then we read that Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And two words are used here, two verbs are used here in the Hebrew to describe his grief. The first is the Hebrew word verb sa-fad. S-A-P-H-A-D. Safad. And the second word that is used here is the word Bacha, which is the normal Hebrew word for weeping almost uncontrollably. Safad and Bakad. Now the first word has the idea of mourning, lamenting, or wailing. And of course, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, people were culturally much more expressive of their emotions. Not like us white Western European types who just want to keep everything bottled up. 
You get into the Middle East and they're just so expressive of their emotions. You get down and you deal with with uh, a lot of folks from Africa and they're expressive of their emotions. You go over and you deal with the with a lot of Asians and they're even less expressive than, than we are. So part of this has to do with, with culture. And so we have to be uh, somewhat careful how we uh, respond to these because sometimes we'll just be dealing with folks and what they're doing is more part of their culture and it's not that they're becoming overly emotional. Uh, Abraham is not being controlled by his emotions, but he is sorrowing. He, rec- he has lost a wife of a hundred years. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being married for a hundred years? So they're mourning, lamenting, wailing over the death of his beloved Sarah. And then he weeps. Baka, strong word for weeping, shedding of tears. And we see strong, strong grief taking place here. It's a very poignant scene. She dies. And then he stands up and he's got to take care of taking care of her burial. It's interesting what we see here in the next section. He makes a, a general proposal to the Hittites who live in the area to purchase some land. And we see his, his uh, uh, sense of propriety. Uh, it's ex- just look at the way he's described in the next few verses. In verse 3, he stood up. And he spoke, indicating the gravity of the situation. Then in verse 7, he stood up and bowed himself down and spoke. And then in verse 12, he bowed himself down and spoke. So all this description emphasizes the, the gravity, the seriousness of the entire situation. In verse 3, he goes before the inhabitants of that part, part of, the, uh, of Canaan. Now, the, the sons of Heth describe Hittites. Now, the Hittite empire never descended this far south. So apparently these were uh, Hittites who had immigrated from the Hittite empire and had bought land and had a settlement in this particular area. He goes to them and he makes a request. He says, I am a foreigner and a visitor among you. I am a sojourner. He's a traveler. He doesn't own a thing. He doesn't have any right to any of the real estate. He says, he makes a request, give me property for a burial place among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. This is his general request. He'll become more specific after the response. And the sons of Heth in verse 5 give him their initial response. Hear us, my Lord. You are a mighty prince among us. This shows Abraham's reputation. He's a mighty prince. He's one of the wealthiest men in the ancient world at this time. And they are almost appalled that he's even coming to them with the request to purchase a paltry piece of real estate to bury his wife. And that raises some interesting uh, uh, speculation as to why he did. Their response is given in verse 6. Hear us, my Lord. You are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our burial places. We'll give you the best plot and the best best area of the cemetery possible. None of us will withhold from you his burial place that you may bury your dead. Then Abraham responds. I think we see here, unfortunately, we just don't know enough about their customs. There are just some hints we've picked up from archaeological data which, which may indicate what's going on here, but it shows how careful Abraham is in his dealings. 
He then stood up and he bows down to them, showing tremendous respect for them and for their customs. And, of course, the application for that is, as believers, our dealings with others, especially unbelievers, should always be in the highest order. We should always show respect and honor and good manners and uh, so that there is nothing that they can lay, uh, no charge that they can lay against us. Uh, Verse 8, And he spoke with him, saying, If it is your wish that I bury my dead out of my sight, hear me, and meet with Ephron, the son of Zohar, for me. So there's a man who owns a particular piece of real estate, the, the caves here that he wants to purchase, the cave of Machpelah, which he wants to pur- purchase for a burial site. And he requests of them to intercede in the, in the business negotiations. That he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he has, which is at the end of his field. Notice the specificity. It's almost like reading a real estate contract. Let him give it to me at the full price as property for a burial place among you. He does, one thing that's clear, he doesn't want to place himself in a position of obligation to the Hittites. He wants to have clear ownership of this land. Now, there's another th- element of this that many scholars believe, and I think it has strong support, and, and I, I tend to think this is uh, probably what the background is. Due to the Hittite laws that we've discovered at uh, Hattushash, or modern Bagazkoi in Turkey, there were certain feudal obligations to, to the ownership of any property. So that if, if you owned property, you not only had, uh, you didn't, might not have had property tax, although in some places they did have a property tax, but you also had obligations to the overlord or the great king or whoever was the the ruler of that land. And Abraham didn't want to obligate himself to any overlord or any suzerain. He wanted full, complete ownership for himself. That's why he insists on paying the full price, not just uh, a partial price. And there's indication of that as part of the custom in uh, in that time, in that time period from documents we have from Uh, the Hittite Empire. Now, in verse 10, we're told a little bit about Ephron. It says, Now Ephron dwelt among the sons of Heth, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the presence of the sons of Heth. So there are witnesses. They're coming together in very solemn ceremony to establish uh, the transfer of title deed. In the presence of the sons of Heth, all who entered at the gate of his city, saying, No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field and the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of the sons of my people. I give it to you. Bury your dead. So he just wants to honor this mighty prince by giving him the land. And then Abraham again responds and bows himself down before the people of the land. And he spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, If you will give it, please hear me. I will give you money for the field. He is insistent upon paying for it. I will give you money for the field. Take it from me, and I will bury my dead there. And Ephron answered Abraham, saying, My Lord, listen to me. The land's worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? That's nothing. This is not a valuable piece of property. Bury your dead. But Abraham is going to insist, and in verse 16, he weighs out the silver, and he pays for it. Now, what lies behind this is a couple of things, I think. Number one, Abraham is still thinking in terms of the future. Where is God taking us in terms of the past promise of that future seed? So he doesn't want to obligate himself 
to the people who live in the land. He wants to maintain his separation and his independence. But notice how even his business dealings and what he's going to do in terms of purchasing this land for Sarah is all dictated by that personal sense of eternal destiny. Doctrine isn't something that just sort of hangs out there somewhere. It has implication for even the the day-to-day business decisions that we make in terms of the ethics that we use, in terms of why we're entering into these obligations, and what are we doing with, with whatever resources that God gives us. So the conclusion comes in verses 17 to 20. The field of Ephron was in Machpelah, which was before Mamre. Remember, this is where uh, Abraham had lived earlier, back during the uh, chapter, chapters 14 and 15. The field and the cave which was in it and all the trees that were in the field, which were within all the surrounding borders, were deeded for, to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth before all who went in at the gate of his city. So when Abraham dies, the only thing he possesses is a gravesite. There's this emphasis on death. In fact, the word's used about eight or nine times in this chapter. And that is a reminder to us that where we are today is not where God's taking us. And that we're still living in the devil's world. We're living in a fallen environment. And our orientation needs to be, as the writer of Hebrews says... The writer, the, the, our, our future needs to be on this destiny that God has for us, that we are strangers and pilgrims on the earth. In conclusion, the last two verses, and after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded to Abraham by the sons of Heth as the property, as the uh, property for burial place. And that's another key word here is that word for property, just emphasizing uh, the ownership. Now, what we learn from this is by purchase, by the purchase of this land and having this possession, Abraham is turning from his past, from his family roots, his family heritage, and he is putting the focus on the future and where the future generations will turn. Second, we see that Canaan is now the land that his descendants will inherit. This is where they will be buried. And when we come to the end of Genesis, the the descendants are no longer living in the land of, uh, of Canaan. They're down in Egypt. But when Isaac and Joseph or Isaac dies, he's taken back and buried uh, in this same location. And then when Joseph dies, he he, he tells his brothers, to make sure that when they finally leave the land, once again, he's oriented to the future, when they leave the land, that he too will have his body taken back and will be buried there. We learn that also that Abraham and Sarah have not exhausted God's promise or his provision. And that happens in our lives. We can't exhaust and we can't out spend the grace of God. We can't overuse the grace of God. We have to keep our focus on the future and that uh, personal sense of our eternal destiny because that gives us the proper perspective for whatever we face on earth today. And then the fourth thing we learn at the end here is the promise of the land is to Israel. By analogy, heaven 
is our future destiny. And as the Jews in the Old Testament kept their focus on the land and God's provision of the land and preparation for the land, and that culminates in the Ezekiel prophecy where you have the revelation concerning the future temple that will be built and the worship that uh, Isaiah chapter 2, that all the world comes to the mountain of God in Israel to worship. All this gives Israel that future focus But for us as believers, as we're seeing in our study of Hebrews, our focus is on where God's taking us in terms of a kingdom of priests and rule with him during the millennial kingdom and on into heaven. So this chapter functions as a transition from verse 20 of chapter 22 down through the end of chapter 23 is a transition to move us uh, as we go through the, the episodes in Genesis to move us from what God did with Abraham to how God is going to continue to fulfill his promise through Isaac and then eventually through Jacob and Jacob's twelve sons. And we'll get into the search for a bride for Isaac and God's sovereign providential uh, care in chapter 24 next time. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening, to be reminded that, that our focus is not on time and what's happening here on earth, but our future destiny to rule and reign with you. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we study this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.